It's a pleasure to be in front of you again today by the grace of God. Um, we want to remind you that if you are a French speaker, you, this sermon will be in English. And if you're in the sanctuary, you may want to get a listening device. And if you are a, uh, if you're watching on Facebook, we do have a uh, Facebook Spanish page and a Facebook French page in which you will hear the French or Spanish translation. But I'm going to speak in English, and uh, as some of the elders will say, uh, Pittsburgh ease. Uh, I'm a native of Pittsburgh, so they may say my, even my English is a little strange. But this morning, I would have us look at a story that is familiar to us. It's the story of the wedding at Cana, found in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. It's here where Jesus works the first of his public miracles and reveals his glory. As a bit of background, it should be noted that John's Gospel is different from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three are called synoptic Gospels because they contain many of the same stories in similar sequence and in similar wording. The term synoptic comes from the Greek syn, S-Y-N, which means together, and optic, which means seen. All three are together seen. In other words, they are similar. In the Gospel of Mark, which most scholars accept as having been written first, we have a narrative that moves breathlessly from one event in Jesus' life to the next, with little commentary. Then Matthew, who gives the story of Jesus a decidedly Jewish perspective by tying in many prophecies and quotes from the Old Testament. And then there's Luke, the doctor, with the skill of an investigative reporter and historian, carefully bringing in more details and adding depth to the story of Jesus' life. And then there's John's gospel. It's different. It's distinct. Perhaps because it was written years later, and after John had undoubtedly read the other three, and had become familiar with the material in them. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells the story of Jesus in a different manner. John writes with the intention not just to give us the facts, the who, what, where, and when, but to give us something more, the underlying purpose and significance of Jesus' life and story using symbolism to get inside the truth of the events in Jesus' life and to draw out their theological significance and meaning. John attempts to explain not just the who, what, where, and when, but also the how and the why. For instance, the synoptic gospels all tell the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with adoring crowds strewing palms along the way. But John is the only gospel writer who gives us the reason for all the adulation and excitement. And that is the very recent news of Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And John also explains his purpose in writing his gospel. And you'll find it near the end of the chapter, in chapter 20, verse 31, where he writes, These are written that they may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote his gospel so that his readers would come to trust Jesus for their salvation and come to newness of life in him. So let's look at this passage together. Let's see how Jesus reveals his glory. Open your Bibles to John chapter 2. If you didn't bring your Bible, our text is printed inside your bulletin. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? We okay over there? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's interesting to note that among the four gospel writers, only John saw fit to include the wedding at Cana in his biography. John, writing later than the other gospel writers, must have come to see the importance of this event in Jesus' life and what it shows us about Jesus. It is at Cana where Jesus first reveals his glory. He shows us that he is the Son of God and performs his first public miracle. And where does it take place? As foretold by the prophet Isaiah, in Galilee of the nations, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in darkness, on them his light has shone. Several commentators have asserted that the story of the wedding at Cana, and in fact, all the events recorded in John's gospel, cannot be fully understood unless they are read through the lens of 
John chapter 1, verse 14. It's a verse well known to us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only, sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wrote his gospel, including this story of the wedding at Cana, so that we, 2,000 years later, could join with those who walked alongside Jesus and be able to say that we, too, have seen his glory. And if we look at the story of the wedding at Cana, in light of John 1.14, the key verse that helps us understand this passage fully is the last verse, verse 11, where John writes, he manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. He manifested his glory. According to Webster's Dictionary, the word manifest means to make clear or evident, to show plainly, to reveal or to prove. So how did Jesus manifest and reveal his glory at this wedding? That glory that John has characterized as being full of grace and truth. How did Jesus show us his true self? How does he prove to us who he is? What does he reveal about himself? And why a wedding? Yes, a wedding. He performs his first public miracle, the first of his signs, at a wedding. And this is perhaps a strange place from which to launch a public career. John couldn't possibly have made this up. Jesus performs a miracle to prevent what is basically on the surface, nothing more than a social embarrassment. They had run out of wine. Seems almost trivial, doesn't it? Maybe Jesus thought, I'll start with a small miracle and work my way up. Take notice. There's nobody sick or lame here. There's no demons to exercise, no sea to calm. No one is dying or dead. And on top of that, it's in a small town among the common folk of Galilee, tucked far away from the sophisticated big city of Jerusalem, removed from the educated scribes, the proud Pharisees and self-important political figures of the day. But John, the beloved disciple, saw something here, something more that at first glance may not be so obvious. Could it be that this is no small miracle, that Jesus isn't giving us a little taste of what's to come, but here in this little backwater town of Cana, Jesus gets right to the heart of the gospel, right to the core of why he came. And he indeed shows us his glory, dwelling among us full of grace and truth. So that's the introduction. But may I suggest three ways that Jesus offers us a glimpse of why he, of who he really is. 
First, he manifests his glory as the obedient son. And we'll take a look at the strange and awkward conversation that he has with his mother Mary. Secondly, he manifests his glory as the ultimate purifier. And here's where the stone jars come into play. And thirdly, he manifests his glory as the all-providing bridegroom who not only meets our needs, but lavishly provides for us his bride and exceeds our expectations and imaginings. So first, when we say obedient son, we want to make sure that the S in son is capitalized because we will see in this passage that Jesus' priority is obedience to his Father in heaven. His primary obedience is to God and not to his earthly mother, Mary. A word about Jewish weddings, especially during this time period. Unlike weddings today, back then it was not all about the bride. And even in Eastern weddings today, it is the groom who is more prominent. It's the groom who is featured. It is the groom who pays for the whole affair. And back then, a wedding could go on for a week or more. There would have been a marriage ceremony, most likely at the home of the groom, and then the couple would consummate their marriage as witnesses either outside the door or outside the home would stand by to verify and after that a procession to the wedding feast a feast which could last for days obviously it was of great importance for there to be enough food and wine to last for quite a while and to not be able to provide for all the guests for however long the celebration lasted, would be cause for social embarrassment. And more than that, failure to provide for your guest would bring shame upon the family. It should be noted that the participants in this wedding could likely have been relatives of Jesus' family. We read, Mary was there perhaps in an official capacity. So when Mary approaches Jesus and says, they have no wine, it's kind of a big deal. And look how Jesus responds. He says, woman, woman. At first reading, it seems as if Jesus is being rude to his mother. How dare he speak to his mother that way? But before you jump to conclusions about this seemingly petulant son, you have to realize that the word woman that he uses is the same Greek word that Jesus speaks to his mother from the cross. When even with his dying breath, he makes sure that Mary will be looked after. He says to his beloved disciple, the author of our story today, behold your mother and to Mary, he says, woman, woman, behold your son. What seems so harsh isn't really. 
In fact, the New International Version translates the Greek, dear woman. He's not being discourteous here at all. He's courteous, but he's not familial. He doesn't call her mom or even mother. It's not disrespectful, but it is distant. It expresses detachment. Jesus is letting his mother know that, yes, as a man, he was considered the son of David and hers. But yet, as God, he was David's Lord, and he is her Lord, and he wants her to know it. And then he follows it up with, what does this have to do with me? Now, there's no doubt about it. This is a rebuke. That phrase in the Greek, ti amoi kai soi, this phrase appears five more times in the New Testament. And each time it is a demon speaking to Jesus. As in Matthew 8, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? But here, Jesus turns the phrase on his own mother. What does this have to do with me? That's rough stuff. But what he's saying is this. You shouldn't be coming to me with in this way. This is not your affair. You're inserting yourself in a matter that you have no part in it. Think about it. Mary has not come to Jesus as earthly mother to earthly son. If she had requested something more common and domestic like, Jesus, could you help your Aunt Elizabeth get home? Or could you and your friends help take down the decorations? I don't think Jesus would have been so put off. But Mary has tread into different territory. The territory of the Godhead. What's so earth-shattering about it? To run out of wine is a social faux pas. It's an embarrassment to the bride and groom, mostly the groom, and shame for the family. In an effort to ease public shame, Mary clearly wants Jesus to do something. They have no wine. Do something. One commentator has suggested that perhaps Mary may have simply wanted Jesus as family spokesperson to make a public apology to ease the situation. But what's important here is how he talks to his mother. And it's made more significant by the fact that he is going to take care of the problem and do a miracle, the first of his signs. So why couldn't he have been a little nicer, gentler to his mother? Something like, yes, mother, I know. If you're going to do what your mom has in mind anyway, why not just agree with her and do it? Why be so disapproving? But Jesus is drawing a clear distinction here, a line in the sand. He's saying, I am not about my mother's business. I must be about my father's will. Notice that Jesus exalts his sonship to the heavenly father above his sonship to his earthly mother. As Tim Keller notes, 
Jesus has carefully chosen his words in this exchange to show his radical allegiance to his father's will over and above his mother's will and over and above all human attachments and affections. But certainly as a member of Jesus' family, wouldn't you expect some preferential treatment? No. No way. There is no nepotism here. Even his own family would have no special advantage in receiving his salvation. The gospel record is clear on this. And Jesus lets Mary know that, he, that it is not her place to be calling out his power. To quote John Piper, Jesus felt a burden to make clear, not only to his mother and his brothers and sisters and all the rest of us, that because of who he was, physical relationships on earth would not control him or oblige him. Jesus was absolutely bound to his Father's will in heaven and to no one on earth. John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And John 5, 17, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He and the Father are one, and they have one will. So to his mother's request, dear woman, what does this have to do with me? Your relationship with me as mother has no special weight here. You are a woman like every other woman. My father in heaven, not any human being, determines what I do. Jesus as man dwells among us, but clearly he is not from us. He is from above. So first we see Jesus reveal his glory as the obedient son, the one and only who came, not from Mary, but from the Father, full of grace and truth. Before I move on to my second point, may I take time to say one more thing. As Pastor Rolando will often say, parentheses. I hope you see this passage is a strong argument against the idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church, where Mary has been given undue honor and has been elevated to the title of Queen of Heaven, their mediatrix, with worshipers praying to her, the mother of Jesus, to command her son to bless them and to do them good that somehow Mary is more accessible than Jesus, the one who came from heaven and gave his life for ours. What a tremendous error. What a tremendous crime against the gospel. This is not some harmless, unimportant distortion or variation of Christian belief. It is anti-Christ. And millions of people all over the world continue to light candles and offer prayers to Mary. They haven't understood who Mary is. And more importantly, they haven't understood who Christ is. They may not see that they have not just elevated Mary, 
But what they have done is to lower and diminish Jesus Christ. And Christ will not be lowered. He will not share his glory with another. And more could be said about this, but let's continue with our story because there's more here. Secondly, Jesus reveals himself and reveals his glory as the ultimate purifier. The word ultimate means final, conclusive, the greatest possible. And purify means to rid of impurities, to free from guilt. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These huge jars were not used for drinking, but for washing, for making oneself clean. And we know that ritual purification is a feature of many religions. And the aim of these rituals is to remove uncleanness before a particular activity, especially before the worship of a deity. For instance, in the Baha'i faith, the washing of the hands and face should be done prior to the recitation of the greatest name 95 times. Now, I'm not sure if that means you're to recite the greatest name 95 times or wash your hands and face 95 times. Either way, it's a lot of fruitless repetition. In Hinduism, washing the entire body, especially in rivers that are considered holy, such as the Ganges in India, is an important, ritual, important part of ritual purification. And in Islam, there is ritual washing before prayers, and if water is not available, you can even perform a dry purification using sand. For the Jews at the wedding feast, the six stone jars are a reminder that God is holy, and their presence there serves as an opportunity for the wedding guests to purify themselves according to Old Testament law, to wash themselves before joining the party. And the water could have been used for simply washing their hands before and after eating. The point is, almost all religions confirm what we already know about ourselves, that we are in a state of uncleanness that we are somehow not ready, just as we are. We know that there's something not right about us, and that something has to be done for what is wrong with us. We have to be purified. My wife Q is famous in our family for making sure that hands are washed. Well, she is a school nurse. In fact, today when I go home and I start to open the refrigerator, she will ask, did you wash your hands? And I will take my hands off the handle of the refrigerator door and dutifully wash my hands. Tops and bottoms, round and round, and fingers in between. Yes, there's actually a song to it. Members of our grace group, back when we were still meeting in our home, can attest to it. The truth is, you are not ready until your hands are clean. But that's only on the outside. 
And we know, as sinners saved by grace, that there is something in us that no amount of hand-washing, deodorant, perfume, cologne, cosmetics, fancy clothes, academic achievement, or amount of money can cover up or clean us up. We try so hard to look good. We're trying so hard to achieve, trying so hard to accumulate, and it's still not enough. We can't make ourselves right. We can't make ourselves clean. And we shudder to think that others might find out about the real us, the real you, the real me. We're all engaged in a great cover-up. We're all trying to cover up our dirt. Even secular, non-religious people know this. It's common with modern people today to talk about one's carbon footprint. Even they try to limit or make smaller their carbon footprint. Yes, we all know we leave a trail of dirt wherever we go. But we also leave a trail of sin and guilt, and that's on the inside. But here at the wedding, Jesus' use of the stone jars signifies that he is replacing the old rules and regulations. As Paul writes to the Colossians, Jesus, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Those rules and regulations that we thought were a comfort and guide are in reality a prison. And we have been made prisoners. Someone once pointed out that we associate Moses with the law and that one of his first miracles was turning the Nile River into blood. Water into blood. Water became cursed. Well, what does Jesus do? He turns water into wine. Water made not into a curse, but into a blessing. You've got to love Jesus here. And you may remember that Jesus and his disciples were criticized for eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus takes the opportunity to scold the Pharisees about the hypocrisy of being clean on the outside and yet filthy on the inside with impure hearts and dirty minds. And Jesus, as the ultimate purifier, is also pointing to his own death. When Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come, he's talking about the hour of his death. Anytime he says the phrase, my hour has not yet come, he is talking about his own death. When he will die for sinners and make final purification for sins, Jesus is saying, no, the climactic hour of my death has not yet come, but I will give you a sign of my death, and I will show you what it will mean. Tim Keller has creatively treated the conversation between Mary and Jesus in a way that may shed some light. He imagines the conversation this way. Mary says, what a total disaster. They've run out of wine. And Jesus responds, woman, 
Why are you telling me this? I'm not ready to die. The shame of running out of wine, the shame of not having enough, not being good enough, not being clean, it's a shame we all carry. And Jesus knows he will have to die to purify us. It will be the best for us. It will be the worst for him. It's the blood of Jesus, the precious Lamb of God that will purify us from our helpless estate. And Jesus here manifests himself as the ultimate purifier. If Jesus had come to earth to live, then he would be our example. But he came to die. Then he is our Savior. A better word would be Redeemer. Because you can actually save someone without dying yourself. But he came to redeem us, to die in our place, to die the death we deserve. And in so doing, he came to replace the Old Testament system, the tabernacle with its veil, the holy of holies, the blood sacrifices every year, over and over again. Jesus is saying, I will take the purification rituals of Israel and replace them with a new way of purification, namely with my blood. This may be what Jesus meant when he said, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins, for the old wineskins will burst. There's only one way to be clean before God. And John will later say it clearly, as he writes in Revelation 7:14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is the only answer to our unclean state, the ultimate purifier. So in this story, we see that Jesus reveals his glory as the obedient son. And we see that he reveals his glory as the ultimate purifier. And lastly, and most wonderfully, he reveals his glory as the all-providing bridegroom. John, the disciple, records John the Baptist speaking about the superiority of Jesus in chapter 3. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And Jesus has his bride. It seems that there were at least five of them, five of his disciples, at the wedding. And his first miracle is to complete what the bridegroom at Cana could not do, fairly or unfairly. It was the groom's fault. He was responsible. It was his shortcoming that allowed the wedding feast to run out of wine. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. You see, the groom was in charge of the wine. 
Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Uh, No, he didn't. We don't know if the groom just played along and gloried in that compliment. Or maybe like most grooms on their wedding day, he didn't have a clue. He really didn't know what was going on. But what we do know is this. Jesus, quietly. Notice he doesn't make a big show of his power. There's no raising of outstretched arms to heaven, no crying out to the Father. He simply tells the servants, fill the jars with water. And then later, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. That's it. No big demonstration. Quietly omnipotently, all-powerfully. Jesus reveals himself as the perfect, all-providing, all-powerful bridegroom, full of grace and truth. Out of water comes wine, better than any husband on earth could provide. Tim Keller again suggests that the idea that perhaps Jesus at the wedding at Cana is thinking and dreaming about his own wedding. When Jesus, the all-providing bridegroom, will be wed to his church. The all-providing bridegroom who has brought us joy. Jesus, he has saved the best for last. His death in our place. His resurrection, our resurrection. Wine in abundance, free, full, overflowing, extravagant. This sign provides us a window into the reality at work as he reveals God's glory. The prophet Isaiah, looking forward, writes about this obedient son, this ultimate purifier, this all-providing bridegroom. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. God has depicted himself as the bridegroom. He shows us that he doesn't just want a relationship of creator to creature or king to subject. He wants a love relationship to you, with you, as profound as the relationship between a husband and a wife. I have come to deal with your shame. I have come to bring you joy. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And yet the question remains, have you made yourself ready? Have you washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb? Jesus at the wedding at Cana has revealed his glory. He has given us a sign. So therefore, beloved brothers and sisters, believe in the obedient Son sent from the Father. Believe in the ultimate purifier, the only one who can cleanse you from your shame, guilt, and sin. And finally, believe in the all-providing bridegroom who has made known to you the path of life, who will fill you with joy in his presence and will fill you with eternal pleasures at his right hand. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glimpse of your glory that we see in the face of Jesus at this wedding feast. May we see your glory in this simple story. May we see the love of Jesus expressed as the obedient son, the ultimate purifier who dies in our place, and as the bridegroom who lavishes his love on his bride, the church, and gives us more than we can ever imagine or hope for. May we continue to seek to know this Christ, who for our sake became poor, so that we could be made rich. This Jesus who now dwells in us, full of grace and truth. Amen.